The following is an adaptation of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. This radio play podcast was produced by the Columbus Civic Theater with funding from the Greater Columbus Arts Council, the Columbus City Council, and Mayor Ginther, and the individual support from listeners like you. Please help support this and other projects that serve the community and public around you. Visit www.columbuscivic.org to see how you can help. It was seven o'clock when we got into the coop with him and started for Long Island. Tom talked incessantly, exalting and laughing, but his voice was as remote from Jordan and me as the foreign clamor on the sidewalk or the tumult of the elevated overhead. The young Greek, Michaelis, who ran the coffee joint beside the ash heaps, was the principal witness at the inquest. He had slept through the heat until after five, when he strolled over to the garage and found George Wilson sick in his office, really sick, shaking all over. Michaelis advised him to go to bed, but Wilson refused, saying that he'd miss a lot of business if he did. While his neighbor was trying to persuade him, a violent racket broke out overhead. I've got my wife locked up in there. She's going to stay there till the day after tomorrow, and then we're going to move away. What happened? Generally, he was one of these worn-out men. When he wasn't working, he sat on a chair in the doorway and stared at the people and the cars that passed along the road. When anyone spoke to him, he invariably laughed in an agreeable, colorless way. He was his wife's man and not his own. Wilson wouldn't say a word. Instead, he began to throw curious, suspicious glances at his visitor and ask him what he'd been doing at certain times on certain days. Just as the latter was getting uneasy, some workmen came past the door bound for his restaurant, and Michaelis took the opportunity to get away, intending to come back later. But he didn't. He supposed he forgot to, that's all. When he came outside again, a little after seven, he was reminded of the conversation because he heard Mrs. Wilson's voice, loud and scolding, downstairs in the garage. Beat me! Throw me down and beat me, you dirty little... Coward! A moment later, she rushed out into the dusk, waving her hands and shouting. Before he could move from his door, the business was over. The death car, as the newspapers called it, didn't stop. It came out of the gathering darkness, wavered tragically for a moment, and then disappeared around the next bend. Michaelis wasn't even sure of its color. He told the first policeman that it was light green. The other car, the one going toward New York, came to rest a hundred yards beyond, and its driver hurried back to where Myrtle Wilson, her life violently extinguished, knelt in the road and mingled her thick, dark blood with the dust. Michaelis and this man reached her first, but when they had torn open her shirtwaist, still damp with perspiration, they saw that her left breast was swinging loose like a flap, and there was no need to listen for the heart beneath. The mouth was wide open and ripped at the corners, as though she had choked a little in giving up the tremendous vitality she had stored so long. We saw the three or four automobiles and the crowd when we were still some distance away. A wreck. That's good. Wilson will have a little business at last. He slowed down, but still without any intention of stopping until, as we came nearer, the hushed intent faces of the people at the garage door made him automatically put on the brakes. We'll take a look. Just a look. I became aware now of a hollow, wailing sound which resolved itself into the words, Oh, my God, uttered over and over in a gasping moan. There's some bad trouble here. He reached up on tiptoes and peered over a circle of heads into the garage 
which was lit only by a yellow light in a swinging wire basket overhead. Then he made a harsh sound in his throat, and with a violent thrusting movement of his powerful arms pushed his way through. The circle closed up again with a running murmur of expostulation. It was a minute before I could see anything at all. Then new arrivals disarranged the line, and Jordan and I were pushed suddenly inside. Myrtle Wilson's body, wrapped in a blanket and then in another blanket, as though she suffered from a chill in the hot night, lay on a work table by the wall, and Tom, with his back to us, was bending over it, motionless. Next to him stood a motorcycle policeman, taking down names with much sweat and correction in a little book. At first I couldn't find the source of groaning words that echoed clamorously through the bare garage. Then I saw Wilson, standing on the raised threshold of his office, swaying back and forth and holding to the doorpost with both hands. Some man was talking to him in a low voice and attempting from time to time to lay a hand on his shoulder. But Wilson neither heard nor saw. His eyes would drop slowly from the swinging light to the laden table by the wall and then jerk back to the light again. Tom addressed the policeman. What you want, fella? What happened? That's what I want to know. Auto hit her. Instantly killed. Instantly killed. She ran out in the road. Son of a bitch didn't even stop his car. There was two cars, one coming, one going, see? Going where? One going each way. Well, she she ran out there, and one coming from New York knocked right into her, going 30 or 40 miles an hour. What's the name of the place here? Hasn't got any name. A pale, well-dressed witness stepped near. It was a big yellow car. A big yellow car. No. You don't have to tell me what kind of car it was. I know what kind of car it was. Tom walked quickly over to Wilson and standing in front of him, seized him firmly by the upper arms. You've got to pull yourself together. Wilson's eyes fell upon Tom. He started up on his tiptoes and then would have collapsed to his knees had not Tom held him upright. Listen, I just got here a minute ago from New York. I was bringing you that coupe we've been talking about. That yellow car I was driving this afternoon wasn't mine. Do you hear? I haven't seen it all afternoon. Only I was near enough to hear what he said, but the policeman caught something in the tone and looked over with truculent eyes. What's all that? I'm a friend of his. He says he knows the car that did it. It was a yellow car. And what color's your car? It's a blue car, a coupe. We've come straight from New York. Someone who had been driving a little behind us confirmed this, and the policeman turned away. Let's get out. Self-consciously, with his authoritative arms breaking the way, we pushed through the still-gathering crowd, passing a hurried doctor, case in hand, who had been sent for in wild hope half an hour ago. Tom drove slowly until we were beyond the bend. Then his foot came down hard, and the coupe raced along through the night. In a little while, I heard a low, husky sob and saw tears were overflowing down his face. The goddamn coward. He didn't even stop his car. The Buchanan's house floated suddenly toward us through the dark, rustling trees. Tom stopped beside the porch and looked up at the second floor where two windows bloomed with light among the vines. Daisy's home. I ought to have dropped you in West Egg, Nick. There's nothing we can do tonight. I'll telephone for a taxi to take you home, and while you're waiting, you and Jordan better go in the kitchen and have them get you some supper, if you want any. Come in. No, thanks. But I'd be glad if you'd ordered me the taxi. I'll wait outside. I'd be damned if I'd go in. I'd had enough of all of them for one day. And suddenly, that included Jordan, too. I sat down for a few minutes with my head in my hands. 
until I heard the phone taken up inside and the butler's voice calling a taxi. Then I walked slowly down the drive, away from the house, intending to wait by the gate. I hadn't gone twenty yards when I heard my name, and Gatsby stepped from between two bushes into the path. What are you doing? Just standing here, old sport. Somehow, that seemed a despicable occupation. For all I knew, he was going to rob the house in a moment. Did you see any trouble on the road? Yes. Was she killed? Yes. I thought so. I told Daisy I thought so. It's better that the shock should all come at once. She stood it pretty well. He spoke as if Daisy's reaction was the only thing that mattered. I got to West Egg by a side road and left the car in my garage. I don't think anybody saw us, but of course I can't be sure. I disliked him so much by this time that I didn't find it necessary to tell him he was wrong. Who was the woman? Her name was Wilson. Her husband owns the garage. How the devil did it happen? Well, I, I tried to swing the wheel and... Was Daisy driving? Yes. But of course I'll say I was. You see, when we left New York, she was very nervous, and she thought it would steady her to drive. And this woman rushed out as just as we were passing a car coming the other way. It all happened in a minute, but it seemed to me that she wanted to speak to us. Thought we were somebody she knew. Well, first Daisy turned away from the woman toward the other car, and then she lost her nerve and turned back. The second my hand reached the wheel, I felt the shock. It must have killed her instantly. It ripped her open. Don't tell me, old sport. Anyhow, uh, Daisy stepped on it. I tried to make her stop, but she couldn't, so I pulled on the emergency brake. Then she fell over to, into my lap and I drove on. She'll be all right tomorrow. I'm just going to wait here and see if he tries to bother her about that unpleasantness this afternoon. She's locked herself in her room, and if he tries any brutality, she's going to turn the light out and on again. He won't touch her. He's not thinking about her. I don't trust him, old sport. How long are you going to wait? All night, if necessary. Anyhow, till they all go to bed. A new point of view occurred to me. Suppose Tom found out that Daisy had been driving... He might think he saw a connection in it. He might think anything. I looked at the house. There were two or three bright windows downstairs and the pink glow from Daisy's room on the second floor. You wait here. I'll see if there's any sign of a commotion. I walked back along the border of the lawn, traversed the gravel softly, and tiptoed up the veranda steps. The drawing room curtains were open, and I saw that the room was empty. Crossing the porch where we had dined that June night three months before, I came to a small rectangle of light, which I guessed was the pantry window. The blind was drawn, but I found a rift at the sill. Daisy and Tom were sitting opposite each other at the kitchen table with a plate of cold fried chicken between them and two bottles of ale. He was talking intently across the table at her, and in his earnestness his hand had fallen upon and covered her own. Once in a while she looked up at him and nodded in agreement. They weren't happy, and neither of them had touched the chicken or the ale, and yet they weren't unhappy either. There was an unmistakable air of natural intimacy about the picture, and anybody would have said that they were conspiring together. As I tiptoed from the porch, I heard my taxi feeling its way along the dark road toward the house. Gatsby was waiting where I had left him in the drive. Is it all quiet up there? Yes, it's all quiet. You'd better come home and get some sleep. No. I want to wait here till Daisy goes to bed. 
Good night, old sport. He put his hands in his coat pockets and turned back eagerly to his scrutiny of the house, as though my presence marred the sacredness of the vigil. So I walked away and left him standing there in the moonlight, watching over nothing. I couldn't sleep all night. A foghorn was groaning incessantly on the sound. Toward dawn, I heard a taxi go up Gatsby's Drive, and immediately I jumped out of bed and began to dress. I felt that I had something to tell him, something to warn him about, and morning would be too late. Crossing his lawn, I saw that his front door was still open, and he was leaning against a table in the hall, heavy with dejection or sleep. Nothing happened. I waited, and about four o'clock she came to the window and stood there for a minute and then turned out the light. You ought to go away. It's pretty certain they'll trace your car. Go away now, old sport. Go to Atlantic City for a week or up to Montreal. He wouldn't consider it. He couldn't possibly leave Daisy until he knew what she was going to do. He was clutching at some last hope, and I couldn't bear to shake him free. It was this night that he told me the strange story of his youth with Dan Cody. Told it to me because Jay Gatsby had broken up like glass against Tom's hard malice. Daisy was the first nice girl he had ever known. He found her excitingly desirable. He went to her house, at first, with other officers from Camp Taylor, then alone. But he knew that he was in Daisy's house by a colossal accident. He was, at present, a penniless young man without a past. And at any moment, the invisible cloak of his uniform might slip from his shoulders. He had deliberately given Daisy a sense of security. He let her believe that he was a person from much the same stratum as herself, that he was fully able to take care of her. As a matter of fact, he had no such facilities. He had no comfortable family standing behind him, and he was liable at the whim of an impersonal government to be blown anywhere about the world. I can't describe to you how surprised I was to find out I loved her old sport. I even hoped for a while that she'd throw me over, but she didn't, because she was in love with me, too. Well, there I was, way off my ambitions, getting deeper in love every minute, and all of a sudden I didn't care. What was the use of doing great things if I could have a better time telling her what I was going to do? On the last afternoon before he went abroad, he sat with Daisy in his arms for a long, silent time. The afternoon had made them tranquil for a while, as if to give them a deep memory for the long parting the next day promised. He did extraordinarily well in the war. After the armistice, he tried frenetically to get home, but some complication or misunderstanding sent him to Oxford instead. He was worried now, there was a quality of nervous despair in Daisy's letters. She didn't see why he couldn't come. And all the time something within her was crying for a decision. She wanted her life shaped now, immediately, and the decision must be made by some force of love, of money, of unquestionable practicality. That force took shape in the middle of spring with the arrival of Tom Buchanan. There was a wholesome bulkiness about his person and his position, and Daisy was flattered. Doubtless there was a certain struggle and a certain relief. The letter reached Gatsby while he was still at Oxford. It was dawn now on Long Island, and we went about opening the rest of the windows downstairs, filling the house with gray, turning, gold-turning light. The shadow of a tree fell abruptly across the dew, and ghostly birds began to sing among the blue leaves. There was a slow, pleasant movement in the air, 
scarcely a wind, promising a cool, lovely day. I didn't think she ever loved him. You must remember, old sport. She was very excited this afternoon. He told her those things in a way that frightened her. That made it look as if I was some kind of cheap sharper. And the result was she hardly knew what she was saying. Of course, she might have loved him. Just for a minute. When they were first married. And loved me even more then. Do you see? It was nine o'clock when we finished breakfast and went out on the porch. The night had made a sharp difference in the weather, and there was an autumn flavor in the air. The gardener, the last one of Gatsby's former servants, came to the foot of the steps. I'm going to drain the pool today, Mr. Gatsby. Leaves will start falling soon. Then there's always trouble with pipes. Don't do it today. You know, old sport, I've never used that pool all summer. I looked at my watch and stood up. Twelve minutes to my train. I'll, I'll call you up. Do, old sport. We walked slowly down the steps. I'll call you about noon. I suppose Daisy will call too. I suppose so. Well, goodbye. We shook hands and I started away. Just before I reached the hedge, I remembered something and turned around. They're a rotten crowd. You're worth the whole damn bunch put together. I've always been glad I said that. It was the only compliment I ever gave him, because I disapproved of him from beginning to end. First, he nodded politely, and then his face broke into that radiant and understanding smile, as if we'd been in ecstatic cahoots on that fact all the time. His gorgeous pink rag of a suit made a bright spot of color against the white steps, and I thought of the night when I first came to his ancestral home three months before. The lawn and drive had been crowded with the faces of those who guessed at his corruption, and he had stood on those steps, concealing his incorruptible dream as he waved them goodbye. Up in the city, I tried for a while to list the quotations on an interminable amount of stock. Then I fell asleep in my swivel chair. Just before noon, the phone woke me. It was Jordan Baker. I've left Daisy's house. I'm at Hempstead, and I'm going to Southampton this afternoon. You weren't so nice to me last night. How could it have mattered then? However, I want to see you. I want to see you, too. Suppose I don't go to Southampton and come into town this afternoon? No, I don't think this afternoon. Very well. It's impossible this afternoon. Various... We talked like that for a while, and then, abruptly, we weren't talking any longer. I don't know which of us hung up with a sharp click, but I know I didn't care. I called Gatsby's house a few minutes later, but the line was busy. I tried four times. It was just noon. When I passed the ash heaps on the train that morning, I had crossed deliberately to the other side of the car. What happened at the garage after we left there the night before appeared. Until long after midnight, a changing crowd lapped up against the front of the garage while George Wilson rocked himself back and forth on the couch inside. Michaelis and several other men were with him, First four or five men. Later, he stayed there alone with Wilson until dawn. About three o'clock, the quality of Wilson's incoherent muttering changed. He grew quieter and began to talk about the yellow car. He announced that he had a way of finding out whom the yellow car belonged to. Michaelis made a clumsy attempt to distract him. How long have you been married, George? Come on there. Try and sit still a minute and answer my question. How long have you been married? Uh, Twelve years. Ever had any children? Come on, George. Sit still. I asked you a question. 
Did you ever have any children? Michaelis knew every object in the office before morning, and from time to time sat down beside Wilson, trying to keep him more quiet. Have you got a church to go to sometimes, George? Maybe if you haven't been there for a long time. Maybe I could call up the church and get a priest to come over and talk to you, see? Don't belong to any. You ought to have a church, George, for times like this. You must have gone to church once. Didn't you get married in a church? Listen, George, listen to me. Didn't you get married in a church? That was a long time ago. The effort of answering broke the rhythm of his rocking. For a moment, he was silent. Then, the same half-knowing, half-bewildered look came back into his faded eyes. Look in the drawer there. Which drawer? That drawer. That one. Michaelis opened the drawer nearest his hand. There was nothing in it but a small, expensive dog leash made of leather and braided silver. It was apparently new. This? I found it yesterday afternoon. She tried to tell me about it, but I knew it was something funny. You mean your wife bought it? She had it wrapped in tissue paper on her bureau. Michaelis didn't see anything odd in that, and he gave Wilson a dozen reasons why his wife might have bought the dog leash. Then he killed her. Who did? I have a way of finding out. You're morbid, George. This has been a strain to you, and you don't know what you're saying. You better try and sit quiet till morning. He murdered her. It was an accident, George. Wilson shook his head. His eyes narrowed, and his mouth widened slightly. I know. I'm one of these trusting fellas, and I don't think any harm to nobody. But when I get to know a thing, I know it. It was the man in that car. She ran out to speak to him, and he wouldn't stop. Michaelis had seen this, too, but it hadn't occurred to him that there was any special significance in it. He believed that Mrs. Wilson had been running away from her husband, rather than trying to stop any particular car. How could she have been like that? She's a deep one. He began to rock again, and Michaelis stood twisting the leash in his hand. Maybe you got a friend I could telephone for, George. This was a forlorn hope. He was almost sure that Wilson had no friend. There was not enough of him for his wife. He was glad a little later when he noticed a change in the room, a blue quickening by the window, and realized that dawn wasn't far off. About five o'clock, it was blue enough outside to snap off the light. Wilson's glazed eyes turned out to the ash heaps. I spoke to her. I told her she might fool me, but she couldn't fool God. I, I took her to the window, this window, and I said, God knows what you've been doing, everything you've been doing. You may fool me, but you can't fool God. Standing behind him, Michaelis saw with a shock that he was looking at the eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg, which had just emerged pale and enormous from the dissolving night. God sees everything. That's an advertisement. Wilson stood there for a long time, his face close to the window pane, nodding into the twilight. By six o'clock, Michaelis was worn out. Wilson was quieter now, and Michaelis went home to sleep. When he awoke four hours later and hurried back to the garage, Wilson was gone. His movements, he was on foot all the time, were afterward traced in the inquiry. There was no difficulty in accounting for his time. There were boys who had seen a man acting sort of crazy, and motorists at whom he stared oddly from the side of the road. The police, on the strength of what he said to Michaelis that he had a way of finding out, supposed that he spent that time going from garage to garage thereabouts, inquiring for a yellow car. On the other hand, no garage man who had seen him ever came forward. 
and perhaps he had an easier, surer way of finding out what he wanted to know. By half-past two, he was in West Egg, where he asked someone the way to Gatsby's house. So, by that time, he knew Gatsby's name. At two o'clock, Gatsby put on his bathing suit and left word with the butler that if anyone phoned, word was to be brought to him at the pool. He stopped at the garage for a pneumatic mattress, and the chauffeur helped him pump it up. Then he gave instructions that the open car wasn't to be taken out under any circumstances. And this was strange, because the front right fender needed repair. Gatsby shouldered the mattress and started for the pool. No telephone message arrived, but the butler went out without his sleep and waited for it until four o'clock, until long after there was anyone to give it to if it came. I have an idea that Gatsby himself didn't believe it would come, and perhaps he no longer cared. If that was true, he must have felt that he had lost the old warm world, paid a high price for living too long with a single dream. He must have looked up at an unfamiliar sky, through frightening leaves, and shivered as he found what a grotesque thing a rose is, and how raw the sunlight was upon the scarcely created grass. A new world, material without being real, where poor ghosts breathing dreams like air, drifted fortuitously about, like that ashen, fantastic figure gliding toward him through the amorphous trees. The chauffeur heard the shots. Afterward, he could only say that he hadn't thought anything much about them. I drove from the station directly to Gatsby's house, and my rushing anxiously up the front steps was the first thing that alarmed anyone. But they knew then, I firmly believe. With scarcely a word said, four of us, the chauffeur, butler, gardener, and I, hurried down to the pool. There was a faint, barely perceptible movement of the water as the fresh flow from one end urged its way toward the drain at the other. With little ripples that were hardly the shadows of waves, the laden mattress moved irregularly down the pool. A small gust of wind that scarcely corrugated the surface was enough to disturb its accidental course with its accidental burden. The touch of a cluster of leaves revolved it slowly, tracing, like the leg of a compass, a thin red circle in the water. It was after we started with Gatsby toward the house that the gardener saw Wilson's body a little way off in the grass, and the holocaust was complete. After two years, I remember the rest of that day, and that night, and the next day, only as an endless drill of police and photographers and newspaper men in and out of Gatsby's front door. Someone with a positive manner, perhaps a detective, used the expression madman as he bent over Wilson's body that afternoon and set the key for the newspaper reports next morning. Most of those reports were a nightmare, grotesque, circumstantial, eager, and untrue. When Michaelis' testimony at the inquest Brought to light Wilson's suspicions of his wife, I thought the whole tale would shortly be served up in a racy pasquinade. But Myrtle's sister Catherine, who might have said anything, didn't say a word. She showed a surprising amount of character about it, too. Looked at the coroner with determined eyes under that corrected brow of hers and swore that her sister had never seen Gatsby that her sister was completely happy with her husband, that her sister had been into no mischief whatever. She convinced herself of it and cried into her handkerchief as if the very suggestion was more than she could endure. So, Wilson was reduced to a man deranged by grief in order that the case might remain in its simplest form, and it rested there. 
But all this part of it seemed remote and unessential. I found myself on Gatsby's side and alone. From the moment I telephoned news of the catastrophe to West Egg Village, every surmise about him, every practical question, was referred to me. At first, I was surprised and confused. Then, as he lay in his house and didn't move or breathe or speak hour upon hour, it grew upon me that I was responsible because no one else was interested. I called up Daisy half an hour after we found him, called her instinctively and without hesitation. But she and Tom had gone away early that afternoon and taken baggage with them. Left no address? No. Say when they'd be back. No. Any idea where they are? How I could reach them? I don't know. Can't say. I wanted to get somebody for him. I wanted to go into the room where he lay and reassure him. I'll get somebody for you, Gatsby. Don't worry. Just trust me and I'll get somebody for you. Meyer Wolfsheim's name wasn't in the phone book. The butler gave me his office address the next morning and I sent the butler to New York with a letter to Wolfsheim and urged him to come out on the next train. That request seemed superfluous when I wrote it. I was sure he'd start when he saw the newspapers, just as I was sure there'd be a wire from Daisy before noon. But neither a wire nor Mr. Wolfsheim arrived. No one arrived except more police and photographers and newspaper men. When the butler brought back Wolfsheim's answer, I began to have a feeling of defiance of scornful solidarity between Gatsby and me against them all. Dear Mr. Carraway, this has been one of the most terrible shocks of my life. I hardly can believe that it is true at all. Such a mad act as that man did should make us all think. I cannot come down now as I am tied up in some very important business and cannot get mixed up in this thing now. If there is anything I can do later, let me know in a letter by Edgar. I hardly know where I am when I hear about a thing like this, and am completely knocked down and out. Yours truly, Meyer Wolfsheim. When the phone rang that afternoon, and long distance said Chicago was calling, I thought this would be Daisy at last. But the connection came through as a man's voice. This is Flegel speaking. Yes? Hell of a note, isn't it? Get my wire. There haven't been any wires. Young Park's in trouble. They picked him up when they handed the bond over the counter. They got a circular from New York giving him the numbers just five minutes before. What'd you know about that, eh? You never can tell about these hick towns. Hello? Look here. This isn't Mr. Gadsby. Mr. Gadsby's dead. There was a long silence on the other end of the wire, followed by an exclamation. Then a quick squawk as the connection was broken. I think it was on the third day that a telegram signed Henry C. Gatz arrived from a town in Minnesota. It said only that the sender was leaving immediately and to postpone the funeral until he came. It was Gatsby's father, a solemn old man, very helpless and dismayed, bundled up in a long, cheap ulster against the warm September day. His eyes leaked continuously with excitement, and when I took the bag and umbrella from his hands, he began to pull so incessantly at his sparse gray beard that I had difficulty in getting off his coat. He was on the point of collapse, so I took him into the music room and made him sit down while I sent for something to eat. But he wouldn't eat, and the glass of milk spilled from his trembling hand. I saw it in the Chicago newspaper. It was all in the Chicago newspaper. I started right away. I didn't know how to reach you. His eyes, seeing nothing, moved ceaselessly about the room. He was a madman. He must have been mad. Wouldn't you like some coffee? I don't want anything. I'm all right now, Mr... Carraway. Well, I'm all right now. Where had they got, Jimmy? I took him into the drawing room where his son lay and left him there. 
After a little while, Mr. Gatz opened the door and came out, his mouth ajar, his face flushed slightly, his eyes leaking isolated and unpunctual tears. He had reached an age where death no longer has the quality of ghastly surprise, and when he looked around him now for the first time and saw the height and splendor of the hall and the great rooms opening out from it into other rooms, his grief began to be mixed with an awed pride. I helped him to a bedroom upstairs. While he took off his coat and vest, I told him that all arrangements had been deferred until he came. I didn't know what you'd want, Mr. Gatsby. Gats is my name. Mr. Gats, I thought you might want to take the body west? No. Jimmy always liked it better down east. He rose up to his position in the east. Were, were you a friend of my boys, Mr... We were close friends. He had a big future before him, you know. He was only a young man, but he had a lot of brain power. Here! He touched his head impressively, and I nodded. If he'd have lived, he'd have been a great man. A man like James J. Hill. He'd have helped build up the country. That's true. That night, an obviously frightened person called up and demanded to know who I was before he would give his name. This is Mr. Carraway. Oh, this is Clipspringer. I was relieved, too, for that seemed to promise another friend at Gatsby's grave. I didn't want it to be in the papers and draw a sightseeing crowd, so I'd been calling up a few people myself. They were hard to find. The funeral's tomorrow, three o'clock, here at the house. I wish you'd tell anybody who'd be interested. Oh, I will. Of course I'm not likely to see anybody. What if I do? His tone made me suspicious. Of course, you'll be there yourself. Well, I'll certainly try. What I called up about is... Wait a minute. How about saying you'll come? Well, the fact is... The truth of the matter is that I'm staying with some people up here in Greenwich, and they rather expect me to be with them tomorrow. In fact, there's a sort of picnic or something. Of course, I'll do my very best to get away. I ejaculated an unrestrained, Huh? And he must have heard me, for he went on nervously. What I called up about was a pair of shoes I left there. I wonder if it'd be too much trouble to have the butler send them on. You see, they're my tennis shoes, and I'm sort of helpless without them. My address is Kara B.F. I didn't hear the rest of the name because I hung up the receiver. After that, I felt a certain shame for Gatsby. One gentleman to whom I telephoned implied that he had got what he deserved. However, that was my fault, for he was one of those who used to sneer most bitterly at Gatsby on the courage of Gatsby's liquor, and I should have known better than to call him. The morning of the funeral, the sky had turned dark, and it was raining. A little before three, the Lutheran minister arrived from Flushing, and I began to look involuntarily out the windows for other cars. So did Gatsby's father, and as the time passed, and the servants came in and stood waiting in the hall, his eyes began to blink anxiously, and he spoke of the rain in a worried, uncertain way. The minister glanced several times at his watch, so I took him aside and asked him to wait for half an hour. But it wasn't any use. Nobody came. About five o'clock, our procession of three cars reached the cemetery and stopped in a thick drizzle beside the gate. First a motor hearse, horribly black and wet. Then Mr. Gatz and the minister and I in the limousine. And a little later, four or five servants and the postman from West Egg in Gatsby's station wagon all wet to the skin. As we started through the gate into the cemetery, I tried to think about Gatsby then for a moment, but he was already too far away, and I could only remember, without resentment, that Daisy hadn't sent a message or a flower. 
dimly I heard someone murmur, Blessed are the dead that the rain falls on. After Gatsby's death, the East was haunted for me like that, distorted beyond my eyes' power of correction. So when the blue smoke of brittle leaves was in the air and the wind blew the wet laundry stiff on the line, I decided to come back home. There was one thing to be done before I left, an awkward, unpleasant thing that perhaps had better have been let alone. But I wanted to leave things in order and not just trust that obliging and indifferent sea to sweep my refuse away. I saw Jordan Baker and talked over and around what had happened to us together and what had happened afterward to me, and she lay perfectly still listening in a big chair. She was dressed to play golf, and I remember thinking she looked like a good illustration, her chin raised a little, her hair the color of an autumn leaf, her face the same brown tint as the fingerless glove on her knee. When I had finished, she told me without comment that she was engaged to another man. I doubted that, though. There were several she could have married at a nod of her head, but I pretended to be surprised. For just a minute I wondered if I wasn't making a mistake. Then I thought it all over again quickly and got up to say goodbye. Nevertheless, you did throw me over. You threw me over on the telephone. I don't give a damn about you now, but it was a new experience for me, and I felt a little dizzy for a while. We shook hands. Oh, and do you remember? A conversation we once had about driving a car. Why, not exactly. You said a bad driver was only safe until she met another bad driver? Well, I met another bad driver, didn't I? I mean, it was careless of me to make such a wrong guess. I thought you were rather an honest, straightforward person. I thought it was your secret pride. I'm 30. I'm five years too old to lie to myself and call it honor. She didn't answer. Angry and half in love with her and tremendously sorry, I turned away. One afternoon, late in October, I saw Tom Buchanan. He was walking ahead of me along Fifth Avenue in his alert, aggressive way, his hands out a little from his body as if to fight off interference, his head moving sharply here and there, adapting itself to his restless eyes. Just as I slowed up to avoid overtaking him, he stopped and began frowning into the windows of a jewelry store. Suddenly he saw me and walked back holding out his hand. What's the matter, Nick? Do you object to shaking hands with me? Yes. You know what I think of you. You're crazy, Nick. Crazy as hell. I don't know what's the matter with you. Tom, what did you say to Wilson that afternoon? He stared at me without a word, and I knew I had guessed right about those missing hours. I started to turn away, but he took a step after me and grabbed my arm. He came to the door while we were getting ready to leave, and when I sent down word that we weren't in, he tried to force his way upstairs. He was crazy enough to kill me if I hadn't told him who owned the car. His hand was on a revolver in his pocket every minute he was in that house. What if I did tell him? That fella had it coming to him. He threw dust in your eyes just like he did in Daisy's. But he was a tough one. He ran over Myrtle like you'd run over a dog and never even stopped his car. There was nothing I could say, except the one unutterable fact that it wasn't true. And if you think I didn't have my share of suffering, look here. When I went to give up that flat and saw that damn box of dog biscuits sitting there on the sideboard, I sat down and cried like a baby. By God, it was awful. I couldn't forgive him or like him but I saw that what he had done was, to him, entirely justified. It was all very careless and confused. They were careless people, Tom and Daisy. They smashed up things and let other people clean up the mess they had made. I shook hands with him. It seemed silly not to, for I felt suddenly as though I were talking to a child. Then 
he went into the jewelry store to buy a pearl necklace. Or perhaps only a pair of cuff buttons. Rid of my provincial squeamishness forever. Gatsby's house was still empty when I left. The grass on his lawn had grown as long as mine. One night I did hear a material car there and saw its lights stop at his front steps, but I didn't investigate. Probably it was some final guest who had been away at the ends of the earth and didn't know that the party was over. Most of the big shore places were closed now, and there were hardly any lights except the shadowy, moving glow of a ferry boat across the sound. And as the moon rose higher, the inessential houses began to melt away until gradually I became aware of the old island here that flowered once for Dutch sailors' eyes, a fresh, green breast of the new world. Its vanished trees the trees that had made way for Gatsby's house at once pandered in whispers to the last and greatest of all human dreams. And as I sat there brooding on the old, unknown world, I thought of Gatsby's wonder when he first picked out the green light at the end of Daisy's dock. He had come a long way to this blue lawn, and his dream must have seemed so close that he could hardly fail to grasp it. He did not know that it was already behind him, somewhere back in that vast obscurity beyond the city, where the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther, and one fine morning... So we beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. This concludes the Columbus Civic Theater's production of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. For bios, ways to donate, and other information, please visit our website, www.columbuscivic.org.